Remember when we were in college? A long, 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 long time ago now. It's a long time Wait, ago. It is a long time ago. Um, if it's so long ago, I uh, remember. I just um, I I just read a thing on uh the internet that the uh the Beck's album Odile just turned twenty five. I was I was already living in Japan when that came out. Wow. Is yeah, that I remember. Long ago? Se- I remember seeing the display to that album in uh, Tower Records, another thing that's actually gone from the U.S., but is still here in Japan. They, they still have Tower Records here. They have a poor selection, though. The used shops have more CDs than uh, Tower Records does. Yeah, I think all the, I think all the selection is on um, the, uh, the internet now. You gotta, it's all on Amazon or something. You got to yeah, <laughs> get it from them or somebody else. Purely streaming. Yeah, I remember because you know, I was, of course, poor... You know, in or, or my CD source, Presto Records. Let's just put it Presto Records. Yeah. I was still well into vinyl heavily when I was in university, and yeah. um, I met when I my started first... university, there was only vinyl. That's right. <laughs> CD came in my well, junior year. Because uh, you, yeah, you're my senior. Yeah, uh, a little bit by a little well, bit. I have less hair. When, uh, yeah, when <laughs> the first <laughs> friend I made when I was in my dorm and got my stereo set up, I had the window open and I was playing uh, Cannonball and Coltrane. And a guy had been walking under my window and heard that and came up and pounded on my door. And uh, we proceeded to uh, become friends. And uh, yeah, we, we were playing jazz together. And uh, well, he, he pounded me. on your door. And what did he do? He said, did he let him in. He said, expletive cannonball Coltrane. Uh, <laughs> what the something. Yeah. And what then, the other expletive. Yes. And then we were. <laughs> We were friends right away, and uh, we had some yeah. musical adventures. Uh, and he, uh, I went over to his place, and I met uh, Don Menza, the great uh, tenor sax player who played with wow. Henry Mancini. And uh, yeah, and then there was another guy down the hall, and well, of course he had a CD player before me. He was heavily into classical music too, and so I, we were listening to Camaretta Burn Orchestra recordings and uh, all these things. Uh, and uh, yeah, so music was a way that I made most of my original friends in university. Yeah, yeah well, mine too. Um, before I even really played, I, I, I eventually, um, I, I went to university with a guitar and uh, everybody played the guitar. So I wound up uh, getting a bass and suddenly I was in every band. <laughs> so I made most of my, my friends through music and through my uh, then vinyl collection. Okay, I had a lot of uh, records. I still remember... Um, yeah, some people, some yeah, some people turning me on to some of the new music that was coming out in the eighties. It was a really exciting time. There was a lot think, of good stuff. What I think the difference was at that time, music was even listening to music was more of a shared experience. Right, you know, right. You, you did it with other people at the same then, time, especially yeah. You know, Not only you that, said, but you would hang around in your dorm room for hours trying to decipher the lyrics to the song or talking about this new album. Was it good? Was it not? It was like the most important thing in the world. That's right. And I kind of miss that. I, I miss it a lot, actually. I yeah. think that's why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. And I you think we say, never you know, really... Come on over and let's listen to this you know, yeah. new recording or something. And it was yeah, you bond over that. Yeah. It was exciting rather than here's this link and <laughs> oh, <laughs> tell me what no. you think. Yeah, that's that's sort of what we do today, uh, Russ. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get together occasionally, but we'll usually be sending each other links. Okay, this is what we're going to talk about on the next podcast. Yeah. We'll send the link. We won't really listen to it together anymore. But, but listen to yeah. something for the first time with friends. That's uh, you know, it's a great experience. You know. Yeah, especially then, especially when it, it just seems so important. I mean, it's still kind of 
it's still fairly important to me. It doesn't have the same meaning as it did then, but I do miss the fact that nobody really seems to care at our age anymore. You know what I mean? They kind of have other um, things to do. I mean, so do I, but I, music still um, kind of stuck with me. It's still very important. I've got to hear everything. And it even marks time for me too. I think one of the reasons I collect so many CDs is so I can remember, oh, this came out this year when I was doing this. Yeah, that's why you I like know. my CDs because when I yeah. go up on this, I mean, I'm, oftentimes I'll just stream them from the, you know, my uh, network attached storage and it's easy. But when I go up to the shelf and pick something, I can pretty much remember where and when I bought every one of them and sort of yeah. transports me back to that place and uh, right. you know, that physical connection. Uh, yeah. But, you know, whether we have physical connection or not, the sharing aspect is uh, something that is most important. So, you know, that's what I hope we can accomplish here. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned that you you were telling me a story about the, that guy that uh, that you met. Uh, who was that? The uh, Oh, Don Menza? Don Menza. Yeah, what yeah, was that yeah. story? Well, I'm trying to think. We were going up to Buffalo to see him play uh, with some kind of local family group or and this, something. This is when? In the, eight, in the 80s? It would be or? 1989. And okay. uh, so I was at uh, the dinner table. And Menza realized that he was late and he said, I've got to change. And rather than excusing himself to the other room or something, he just, uh, he just changed right at the table. And I think he had some like uh, purple speedos or something on there, you know? And so I was kind of, you know, Wait, shocked. how old was he at this time? Oh, I don't know. He must have been, you know, late forties, early fifties at the time. And who, yeah. and who was at the table? You and your friends or? And family, yeah. And, and family too, mom there, and yeah. dad. But uh, yeah, wow. he just, you know, switched over to the, uh, tuxedo and that was it yeah so how, how about that yeah <laughs> yeah that's jazz yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. good one of my good memories yeah. yeah yeah okay all right sounds good yeah yeah speaking so, of sharing music uh we're about to do that uh right now so right. what's this uh so well, this is, how, we'll how are we let, doing this please let tell count. me let me count uh this is episode 19 it's episode music? 19 of of what? Yeah, there you go. Of adult oh. music, which okay. is adult music for the adult mind. I think it was the uh, what was the word mind. you used for the mature, mature mind? mind. The mature music. Mind. There's a nice alliteration there. Music right. for the mature mind. Adult music for the mature mind. Right. Yeah. And episode 19, and that's excluding our new series of special interview episodes. Yeah. The first of which, which was. Released about a week ago, and Mike Ladon. They're gonna; those are gonna yeah. come out on Fridays, but not every Fridays. week. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that was Mike Ladon. The or great Thursday evening, depending on where you live. <laughs> organist and pianist. If you haven't checked that out yet, you should go check that out for his uh, recent release. It's all your fault. Dedicated to Dr. Lonnie Smith. Yeah, and, and he's we'll really a, interesting. It's, yeah. it's a really good interview. Yeah, he yeah. told us so much information. We've got another one uh, coming up soon. And yep. the third one that's uh, actually already done in the wings. So we'll have a we're, whole, we're waiting for the release. Yeah, a whole interview series that will be uh, running along the regular episodes. And so for all our listeners, I'd like to remind you before we get going with this week's music, which I think is a really nice program of accessible things and a great variety. But if you look in the episode description, you're going to find links to all the Spotify and Apple Music streaming for the music we discuss 
Also, at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist, all the music in one place, all the music that's available on streaming, our first one this week. Unfortunately, you have to buy if you want to listen to it. But that's on Deezer, uh, the service that Mike and I are using and are pretty happy with for classical jazz and everything else for sound quality and variety. But you'll find that list there. You can also listen to our podcast on Deezer and the streaming list of tunes is under adult music podcast. Now, if you can't see that full description on your app or whatever service you're listening to, because the services uh, list the data, some of them are incomplete. Uh, you can check us out on our host uh, Podbean and just look up adult music there and all the links are fully active there. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, do please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. And if you take a couple minutes to give us a ranking or write a review, it will help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. So recently yeah. we've been uh, in the recommendations on Apple, also on our own Podbean. But if we don't get a lot of hits there or feedback, sometimes we drop out of the browse category. And uh, this month we're up in the Amazon podcasts too, which is nice because we really want to grow our audience. And so we'd much appreciate if you take a couple of minutes to uh, give us some feedback that way. Now, if you'd like to contact us with, you know, direct uh, comment or feedback, uh, please uh, don't hesitate to email us. Our email address is adult music podcast. That's all one word, adult music podcast at Gmail. Com. Yeah, and uh, yeah, or you can just take a few seconds and just give us a five star kind of rating. That would help a lot too, because it helps us in the algorithm. Yeah. And uh, let, let's face it; I mean, where else are you going to get stories about uh, jazz musicians in uh, purple speedos? I mean, I've got a you lot know, more. It, I've got a lot more only, stories like that. Yeah. Well. Well, boy, we're going to have to hear those. I don't really have that many of those. I kind of have one or two. But stories. And you no, know nothing, what? Nothing terribly interesting about musicians, though. Okay. Looking at what? the uh, the stats, what we get back from our listeners. Well, we've got over fifteen hundred downloads, which is really nice. And uh, most of our audience is in North America and Japan. But number three, and always growing, is India. Yeah, very uh, interesting. Got us on uh, Geo Savan and uh, what's the other one? Uh, Ghana. And so we've got a lot of East listeners in India. So wait, that, are you... those are places in India that you just said? Or? No, those are the the other countries. The stream the podcast apps that oh, are okay. special to Ghana. India. Okay, I know. So I, I do remember. I thought that. you know, okay. there's a billion people in India, and they must like music. And so I got on those podcasts specifically. And now we've got a lot of listeners there, but we haven't heard from anyone in India. So India, rem- listeners in yeah. India, send us some uh, feedback. We'd like to hear from you. Yeah, let us know what Be you like. I remember there were a lot of, um, when I was living in Boston, there were a lot of, uh, you know, a friend of mine was an engineer, a guy who played in my band, and uh, he, he would have parties at his house. And, you know, there a lot of the people from his office would come, and a lot of them were Indians. They were they're actually from India, not American-born, and they were going to go back there. And they were really into classical music. I was kind of surprised, like, you know, because at the time I was very young. I didn't know what people, you know, listened to or not. But they uh, they knew a bit about the repertoire. I was kind of well, I've really been to interested India, in that. And yeah. uh, I had a great adventure and I want to go back. But we'd like to hear from uh, Indian listeners too. And also, I'm happy to report that uh, UK 
listeners, uh, United Kingdom is also one of the fastest growing groups. So uh, that's a plus too, because I wondered why we hadn't had a lot of downloads uh, from the UK until the end of May or so, but that's growing too. So I'm really glad to hear that personally, because yeah. I buy the majority of my classical music CDs from UK outlets, especially Presto Music. So, yes. you know, support your local UK outlets out there. I love them. They're, they're really helpful and they're great and they have everything. It's fantastic. That's right. Okay. Well, on to this get, week's music. Where shall I we guess begin? On to the music. Here we go. Well, we always go back in time and I always try to start with the Baroque era or something around there, whether it's classical renaissance, but I like the Baroque. I try to wake up every morning to, uh, Baroque well, not wake up to but play Baroque. Yeah, it is good. In fact, back in the day, and I know there might there might be one or two of my old um workmates listening to this podcast from Boston when I used to work at uh, WBUR National Public Radio at Boston University, and there was a show on the air then. This is back when they did music. I think they're all news now, but uh, there was a show then called Morning Baroque, and that got me into the habit of listening to Baroque music in the morning. It just really picked up my uh, spirits. Uh, mostly Baroque instrumental music. Baroque um, vocal music isn't always very cheerful. <laughs> it really, yeah. like like most opera, it really tries to hit you in the emotions, kind of make you kind of sad or you know outraged or whatever. Well, you never outrage, but there's usually this outrageous situation that the uh, Singer is singing about, you know. You know, the the Baroque compositions, the logic and connection sort of aligns my brain waves and makes me ready to function in the morning. I really like it. Yeah, I wrote a rather um on my website, you can actually look at this, michaelvizuto.com. Um I wrote on my uh website uh, uh, something about how Baroque music is kinda why it's so positive. And it was really because at the time this was the era when, you know, people figured out that, you know, the earth went around the sun and uh, Newton kind of came up with the laws of the uh, universe at the time. So it was the, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, basically. And, uh, well, it was, more, you know, it was more after the Renaissance, the Baroque era. So the Enlightenment was beginning, the scientific Enlightenment anyway. And um, it was just a very positive time. People, you know, science seemed to be solving all of the world's problems. Um, and people were very positive. And I think that got into the music. And it's it really is a, uh, you know, listening to Baroque instrumental music is a good way to. Uh, wow. Science of, was solving problems rather than causing them. Well, now they're, now it's causing them. <laughs> but back in the day, it was, it was a different time story. Machine. Yeah, everything changed with World War Two. We kind of the dark side of all that, uh, you know, rationalism kind of caught up with us. And that's kind of we're still living in the aftermath of that, I believe, today. But um, this was the uh, just like the. You know the dawn of the um, the uh, age of reason. Um, you know people oh. people were really. Um, you mean it was facts over feelings? Yeah, at the time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I. But we've learned that facts over feelings isn't always a good thing. But then again, feelings over facts is rarely a good thing. So we're, I think I guess we're just screwed either way. That's right. <laughs> we really just can't win. All right, human beings. What we need to do is get get to the temple and become like the Buddha. And then that's, that's, that's how I think we're going to solve our problems. Cause I don't think uh, the human mind can actually do it. That's just my cynical take on the world. Despite the fact that I'm listening to Baroque music every morning, I still feel like that. Anyway, there we go. We just blew your mind. So now, now we're going to play some music for you. That's going to blow your mind. Our first, um, and, and this kind of did, well, it didn't blow my mind, but it did kind of like make some spark go off here. Our first recording this week is the six 
Keyboard Partidas by Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the great cornerstones of the keyboard repertoire and, and, and of Bach's uh, output, played by the Iranian-American um, uh, harpsichordist Mahan Esfahani uh, and recorded on the Hyperion label, which means that you can't play it on your um, streaming site. you got to go to the Hyperion uh, website to to sample this. Yeah, unfortunately, um, it's not on the Deezer yeah, list. Have, and we don't have any Apple. You basically have to buy it. Or Spotify links, you have to buy it. Although, I'll put the link up for the uh, Hyperion site where you can sample the tracks. Right. All right. Well, um, the six partitas, these have been recorded. I have lots of recordings of these, too. Surprisingly, not as many as of the the sonatas and partitas for solo violin. I think I have, like, more than way more, easily more than 10 of those. And this, I have about six or seven. But most of them are on the piano. And I have maybe this one, and let this the um, my favorite my favorite release of these is by um, Trevor Pinnock on the Hansler Classic label. Came out in the two thousands, I think around two thousand six or so, and that's my favorite harpsichord recording of these works easily. And my favorite piano recording, if you want to know, is by the American pianist Richard Good. Also came out in the uh, I think in the two thousands or so. You know, the aughts, as they call them. The I didn't look this up. I'm just remembering off the top of my head. The years are ro- fl- flying by now, and I can't remember when things happened anymore. But uh, it's just this, this big, long thing. All right. Anyway, we have this new recording, and I'm always happy to hear Mahanis Fahani. You and I uh, kind of bonded over his playing on, a, on an older uh, CPE Bach recording. Uh, CPE yeah. Bach, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, was uh, Johann Sebastian, the great Johann Sebastian's oldest surviving son and uh, there was an older brother that died like three weeks after he was born or something i think i don't remember i you know I, I i at the beginning of this podcast way back in episode one i said i was a music scholar but i'm not doing it now so i don't really remember anything but i did i did know all this stuff at one time it's in there somewhere i just you know i'm just kind of talking off the top of my head anyway yeah we bonded over that because he was one of the few people who got that you know, carl philip emmanuel bach was uh had a sense of humor that's right. And uh, a lot of it is in the uh, the sudden, uh, the bizarre kind of chords you would occasionally use, like in these in these kind of seemingly straightforward situations. And the uh, the constant, you know, slamming on the brakes of the rhythm in his music. And Esfahani got that and kind of played it up um, a lot. Another another um, harpsichordist who really understood that was Andreas Steyer, who's... Um, CPE Bach uh, harpsichord uh, concertos we both really loved back then too and we became big CPE Bach fans but it's been kind of hard to find good CPE Bach recordings anyway here we are in the modern day and uh, Esfahani has um, released his second um, um, release of uh, Johann Sebastian the you know the great Johann Sebastian's um, keyboard music the first was the Toccatas and this is the the six partitas um if you're a keyboard player you know, of the box suites, you know that the French ones are the easiest, by the, though they're really not easy. Uh, then come the English suites, and then the big demanding ones are these, the partitas. These are the for the higher level players. Okay. Now, I liked um, Trevor Pinnock's recording of this because it's just very. He, he's got a good sense of uh, the joy of box music. Now, the thing about and and he's got some nice effects on his harpsichord. It was just a really beautiful recording and just really sunny and you know enjoyable. Now Esfahani's um, approach here is very interesting, and I didn't really figure it out until the very end of this recording. Well, if I did, but I just kind of um, this is what I thought. Um, this um, it's a two CD set, 
And um, I guess you can buy an MP3 of it from the Hyperion site too. And um, I didn't check whether it was in this order. But these go Partita 1, 2, and 6. And then CD2 has Partitas 3, 4, and 5. So they're not in the order that they were written. And I don't know that he wanted this order for a specific reason. Although he ends, you know, um, he's got all the three minor ones together. Um, but he, uh, this something happens in these that's that's kind of interesting. So I think they need to be listened to in this order, in the order that they're laid out on the CD. Um, all right, now the first one, Partita number one, B flat major. He kind of, um, we we hear his sound, and um, one of the things I like about this recording is that it's not the microphone isn't in the. Uh, in the harpsichord's lid, like right on top of the strings, picking up like every little squeak in the instrument. Uh, It's a little distant. And um, he gets this, so we don't get this very loud kind of in-your-face sort of um, sound. It's kind of a little bit distant, but not really. It still doesn't sound like a a concert hall harpsichord. It's kind of chimey. Hmm? Actually, I I thought that this recording is uh, much um, more dynamic and full than the uh, Wurttemberg sonatas. Uh, I mean, I know it's in different Oh, you're, you're going for the older recording, the older yeah, compared to that recording. Um, yeah. I thought I was really impressed with the amount of volume uh, that, you know, because like we had said before, if you hear, if you ever hear a harpsichord in a live performance, right, <laughs> you're going to be really surprised compared to listening. Yeah, to if you've never heard a harpsichord before, it's a very quiet instrument. Yeah, you know, everybody's like leaning forward in their chair trying to. <laughs> so I thought this was surprisingly full volumed and well, listening. I listened on you know various systems and then with headphones too but the level of detail in the recording is quite high i could actually hear mecha- mechanical sounds from the instrument and uh yeah. other things although there is still enough of a room natural reverb for the yeah. instrument too but, but yeah it's it's quite uh you know fully dynamic uh in the spectrum of it but here's the thing. It starts in a quieter dynamic, and by the end, it's fully opened out. This is this is kind yeah. of the reveal I wanted to make, and you just kind of ruined it for me. There. I'm so sorry. That's, that's okay. Never mind. Uh, that's what we're all about here is uh, <laughs> just you're revealing everything. Now, the first one, he gets this nice, beautiful, chimey, like almost music box kind of sound out of this. And there wasn't really much... Um, he, he doesn't really do much in the first partita to bring out sort of um you know different like sort of uh textures with the the sound he's using he pretty much sticks to the same sound and i was thinking oh this is going to be a recording where we're going to hear the um the, you know the the harmony okay he's really going to focus on the uh the more intellectual side of box music okay and i think he does that in partita 1 but then as the other partitas go by 2 6 then 3 4 5 other elements are added so, so soon he's um sort of um using the um the um the, the 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 muted sounds or the uh the the more open ended sounds to like highlight certain harmonies at certain times i remember there was one point in uh, partita 2 where um he just kind of doubled so he he just kind of changed register not changed register but changed the uh there it's a two manual keyboard and i think uh if you're playing on the top manual you're only getting like one string and then there are three strings in the bottom one so it's louder and the the texture changes and he uh, at one point in this he he uh, highlights a certain cadence only with the um 
the bottom, you know, using the uh, the louder register. And I was kind of like, oh, that's pretty interesting. I would, you know, wonder why he's doing that. But so he's highlighting certain elements of the score. Now, I didn't really listen to this like some scholar trying to figure out every bit of it, but I noticed that. Then um, soon he was starting to use the mutes. He has some really, he has a lot of gorgeous sounds on this um, instrument. In fact, we're going to put up a video of him talking about the instrument he's using. It's a 2018 model that he had made for him um, specifically to play box music. And uh, it, it's apparently a bit of a, a monster. It gets a lot of different uh, sounds. Um, just I don't I don't know how he kind of he'll explain a little bit of that to you, and then I was thinking okay intellectual okay now he's getting into the uh, you know the colors and things like that. Then um, when I the the first thing I think about when I hear the partitas is that they're they're old baroque dances, Alamand, Courant, Saraband. These are all jig. These are all um dances, and he wasn't pulling out the dance element. This was in a really sprightly kind of rhythmic performance. And as we go, we, we start hearing in um, Partitas 3 and 4, we start hearing more and more of the uh, the mutes, like the, the plucked, you know, the muted plucked strings. It makes the harpsichord sound a bit like a guitar or like a lute, I guess, that's kind of muted with the, the fingers. Uh, we, we hear that sound more and more. And then finally, in Partita number 5, we get the dancey rhythms. Now, those rhythms exist in all of the... Uh, the uh, partitas, but he just decided to kind of like expose different elements in each one of the partitas. But here's the thing. He doesn't erase any of the elements that he exposed in some of the um, earlier ones that he played here. He, It's cumulative. By the end, you're hearing like every effect. Uh, by partita five, you're hearing every effect on the harpsichord. I thought that was a really interesting approach. And yeah. I kind of want to hear the whole set again because of that. It was kind of interesting. Uh, it doesn't, because of that, it's it's kind of a unique uh, recording. I, it's not going to go to my number one, but uh, I really did enjoy it. I thought it was kind of intellectually stimulating uh, the way he approached this uh, this recital. Yeah, he's got amazing technique, but it's not just the technique. He has a great flair with, you know, his playing. And I like his attention to detail with the tempos, too. Everything seems just about right. I never mm. get the sense that he's going too fast or drawing things out too long. Um, and as I mentioned, compared to the instrument that and the recording on the CPE Bach, I found this one a much fuller sound, but also in depth. I could hear so many things uh, in here, and the recording is so clean. I could actually hear things that I didn't want to hear if I was listening <laughs> too closely. Uh, I tend know, to so, like those things though, because yeah, it kind of makes you feel like right. you're there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, the squeaks on the guitar neck, things like yeah, that. Yeah, those kind of things. Those kind of things. It's like you're kind of right there. Uh, so yeah, the performance is is great. As you said, it has that building effect which he's done by, you know, re maybe re purposely rearranging, you know, the, the order. And, uh, but after listening to all of them a couple of times, I've found that I'm particularly drawn, I don't know if it's the harpsichord sound or these particular pieces, but I really like the minor key uh, mm -hmm. partitas better. So two and six are my favorites. Mm. And uh, th those I find, you know, in, both, you know, Bach's compositions and then his interpretation. Those are really, really great. And um, they really bring out all the things that, you know, harps, harpsichord can do best uh, with yeah. a composition. And, you know, those two are, you know, really, I, I listened to those, I listened to the whole album about three times and then I listened to those. Wow. Two, I didn't get to that extra much. couple of times. So I like those wow. a lot. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, I like those too. Um, I, I suspect you didn't want to end on a, the, the minor key one because the six ones in a minor key. Right. Yeah, and so it sounded like he, the uh, yeah, the two, the, the partitas four and five are both major. And I really like, I like the, the thing I like about these in, in a sort of meta level is the way he arranges is the, uh, the emerging from the darkness into the light sort of quality that you get from a minor key work to a major key work. This right. happens naturally in the sonatas and partitas for solo violin, which we talked about, um, I, I was it two weeks ago now. I don't yes. remember. Maybe it was last week. I don't, I don't know. But uh, that, that happens naturally in those because Bach has arranged the works like that. But uh, these works weren't written – oh, they were written at about the same time. But they weren't supposed to be like a, a set, I don't think. They they have different catalog numbers too. But um, yeah, I, I like that moment when you get into the major key again and you're in the light and you've had, you already have yeah. all this kind of like uh, cerebral stuff behind you. And now you're kind of like dancing around sort of, you know? It's a nice recording. Um, yeah. I like I like his sound a lot. Uh, it's it's kind of a chimey sound, as I said. But then yeah. he uh, in, on disc two, he's starting to uh, you know sort of uh, give us more you know different uh, dynamics. And um, can I say tambers? Man, I gotta I gotta oil this chair or something. <laughs> Speaking of squeaking things, um, tune up your chair, man. Tune up my chair. Yeah, so I thought um, I thought this was really enjoyable, and it kind of when when I figured out like oh at the end when Petita Fire where you're hearing like really all the sounds that his instrument can make, it kind of like suddenly and the dance rhythms, it sort of like dawned on me oh wow this has been a cumulative uh, experience. I wasn't even aware of it when it was happening. Now you go back, you listen to it again, you realize it all. It's a pleasure all over again, and new discoveries to be made. Recommended. Yeah, if you like yeah. uh, harpsichord even mildly, you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, he really digs in and uh, makes the harpsichord dynamic. Uh, all of in his other recordings, have a couple other uh, ones, in, including that CPE Bach. And you know, this is the great thing for you know a weekend morning or weekday, or if you have to work at the computer and you want to put on something that's going to you know be energetic. Baroque to align the brain waves. Uh, yeah, this harpsichord is dynamic yeah. and uh, good technique and a wonderful sound all around. And that's uh, the Bach partitas. You can't yeah, go it's wrong. Bach. And uh, yeah, yeah. Cheers to Hyperion. After I think I said something bad about one of their recordings. Uh, the yeah, just recently, episode. just last week, I think yeah, it was last right? week. I was disappointed, but this one sounds spot on. So. Well, you you didn't like the uh, yeah the uh, that piano one. Um, Oh yeah, Vlad. What, what I forgot the name. God, is the uh, Bulgarian composer. Yeah, yeah I love that yeah, you recording. Thought it was veiled, but yeah, yeah the, they forgot to you know open up the curtains on the recording or something. Yeah, but, I, I claimed it was the actual sound that the music made, but I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I can't really tell. Yeah, nothing right, like exactly. that on this one though. This one sounds yeah. great. Yeah, this is great, and it's kind of a little bit of a nice brain surprise. I would I would give it a listen. It's good. All right. Good work, Hyperion and Mahan Esfahani. A really enjoyable recording. Um, oh, by the way, if we ever interview a harpsichordist, is it going to be unprofessional if we ask him if he if he's ever played the Adams Family theme like at, at a concert? You know he's done it. We just have to you make him admit it. it. it just have to yeah. make him admit it. Yeah. What if they ever come out and do that as an as an encore? I've never heard that done, but uh, I don't know. Maybe I've, heard one jazz, of these. I've heard jazz musicians do it, but not on a harpsichord, yeah. obviously. Yeah. You know, one of these younger <laughs> millennial players will have done it just to cut out all the pretentiousness. Some idiot stands up at the concert and goes, hey, play the Adams Family. 
yeah, the whole audience snapping along. <laughs> it sounded oh, a God. lot of fun. Uh, it's, yeah, maybe it would kind of get you loosen people up a bit. That's right. Classical audiences can be stuffy. They sure can. Although I don't remember because I haven't been to a classical audience concert in years now. In a while now. Because yeah. of this coronavirus thing. I don't know. Right. All right. On to the next recording. And I have to tell you, um, okay, this is um, a composer. I've always really tried to get into with minor success but there's a lot more music by him coming out now and I'm starting to like these new performances maybe it's because of my age and my experience now but this it's is the Greek, Greek to me, composer man. yeah it's all Greek to you well it was all Greek to me but not anymore not anymore <laughs> because cause it's uh, I, I like these recordings this is uh, the Greek composer Nikos Skalkatas I hope I'm saying that right Nikos Skalkatas and this is the second release in um, a series that's coming out on the Naxos label this particular uh, release is called Dance of the Waves and uh, that refers to a movement in um, his uh, folk ballet, The Sea. Okay, there are three excerpts from that included on this recording. Uh, it also features the first series of 36 Greek dances, um, which he has orchestrated. It's a lot of These dances. Are, yeah, it's a lot of, but we only hear 12 of them here. There are three suites That's right. of, of 12 each. Um, can you imagine if you had, this is something that um, classical CDs or releases do. Like, oh, the 36 Greek dances, you know, Nikos Kakatos. You're not going to listen to all of these. It's really, it's going to be too much. 36 would you know? be a lot of dances. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the way they go. They're kind of, you know, they're sort of like um, orchestrated in the same way, say the Dvorak uh, Slavonic dances. Yeah. Or the they're short, less than three minutes like each. Like so. dances are. Yeah. And they all have that punctuation with the bass drum and the cymbals like yeah. constantly coming in uh, you know it's a it's a feature of, the, of this kind of uh, music and orchestration but it, it's really too much shall we say too much of a good thing I don't know yeah, well, and, here, uh, the, here it's just right I think splitting these up is a good idea yeah that's yeah. a really good idea yeah. they're actually easier to kind of get through okay let me let's just start talking about the music because you know, yeah. I don't need to list all the tracks so this album starts out with the 36 Greek Dances Series 1 now what these are this is pretty interesting they're, they're different types some of them are actual Greek folk melodies some mm -hmm. of them are melodies that are based on Greek folk melodies that he composed by himself and say so he's kind of echoing that and right. other ones are sort of like um arrangements of like Greek sounding melodies that he sort of like Bartok did with um you know Hungarian music and the music from that region Romanian right. and and all of that so we get a combination of all of that here um they seem these are these are from earlier in his actually are they when when did these Oh, 1930. These are late. Okay, these are fairly late. Okay, so he had already studied with Schoenberg at this point, and uh, so he was collecting this. So he's a kind of like a he's not a combination of Schoenberg and Bartok. He's really his own man, but he kind of oh, yeah. is sometimes in Bartok mode and sometimes in, in Schoenberg mode. Yeah, the way he as you composes. see later in the recording. Yeah, yeah, and here he's in Bartok mode where he's collecting and uh, creating these uh, folk Greek folk sounding melodies and orchestrating them. Well, I enjoyed um, these a lot. Um, the yeah, melodies are the melodies are great, but not only that the the orchestration what he's done with um, you know assigning the sounds and parts of the melodies is really wonderful. He's yeah. using the full orchestra. There's lots of great brass parts. All the sections uh, get used really to great effect here, and you know they're short. And having them first in the program, and then, as you said, you know, you can't do all 36 if he has that many yeah. uh, on no, one uh, disc. Yeah, he did. Yeah, but he they're in the three suites. We're going to hear uh, more as, later. As just 12 
short selections, there's enough variety in the types of melodies and his orchestration is a lot of fun and they're very accessible. Anyone could listen to these and enjoy them. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I found them, you know, really, really nice. Makes me want to, I've been to Greece twice. I wanted to go back again right away. Yeah. I'm like that too. I really liked yeah. it there too. Um, I really, I really, I haven't been there since the two thousands. I really do want to go back I loved it. Yeah. I really loved it. And uh, yes, yeah, so these, these, these dances kind of reminded me of, of that. You know, I got to see an actual Greek folk dance when I was there where they dance in a circle. It was really right. cool. It's a very attractive arrangements using the melodies. I mean, they sound, as far as I can understand, they sound Greek. As you mentioned, I didn't know that yeah. there was various mm-hmm. inspirations for them. But right. yeah, certainly- There's a lot of variety here. Yeah, yeah. In the melodies have variety, and then mm-hmm. you'll enjoy- what he does using the full orchestra and and the different colors and things with them. So they're a lot of fun. Yeah, I should mention, by the way, this is uh, recorded by the Athens State Orchestra conducted by Stephanos Tsialis. Now, Skalkatis, he wasn't known as a composer in his lifetime. Um, his work, he only got about three works com- you know, pre- performed while he was alive, and he died very young. Uh, he was, um, let's see, he was only like 40, what, 46, Ooh. 45 or, wow. or 46. I don't know when he, exactly when he died, but 1904 to 1949. And he died of, uh, he, he had some disease. I wonder if it says here, I remember reading about this, but I didn't, uh, I guess not. Anyway, I'll look it up later. But, um, yeah, he. Uh, so this was he was a violinist in this orchestra. He was one of the huh? he was one of the founding members. He was one of the. Uh, he played in it from its founding until the day he died. Um, so uh, he's really kind of a so, sort of like being like a, on a sport, you know, one of the first members of a sports wow. team or something like yeah. that. So the uh, the Athens State Orchestra now is releasing all of these recordings on Naxos to kind of uh, commemorate him. It's very nice as yes. one of their compatriots. And it's not only is it nice; it's it's great for us because it's good to have these uh, recordings available yeah. um, to us because these are these are really good performances, as we said, and these are interesting works. Okay, next after the thirty six after twelve of the thirty six Greek folk dances, sweet one, we get. Um, Segments of a folk ballet, yes. the sea, starts, which has never been performed before in its it, entirety. This is really befuddling because it we get <laughs> you get like movements four and uh, seven, and uh, is it what's the other one? Uh, three, oh. Yeah, it's incomplete. So you you wonder what yeah. the rest of them must sound like, right? Yeah, this is this ballet. It's a ballet, and it's never been performed. So uh, dance companies, uh, here's something for you to. Uh, to tackle, I I wouldn't mind seeing this myself. Yeah, <laughs> so um, sounds like it might be interesting. Anyway, we get three segments from this ballet. It's called uh, the ballet is called the Sea. Uh, the first uh, movement is called the Trawler, and uh, this is apparently kind of a a bit of a it's got folk like themes to it. I get it's got kind of a wistful feeling to it. I think it's supposed to be like a sailor. Yeah, um, on the boat, kind of like it, looking it at the like stars or something like that, brooding, or looking out to the waves. Yeah, brooding low swing string swells that are you know supposed to evoke the sea images. Right, but it has also like a lot of music. nice brass parts in it too. And I thought I knew you were going to mention yeah. the brass parts. Yeah. yeah, there are good brass parts in the Greek dances too. Yeah, and he's he's uh, like a good any good twentieth century composer. He uh, features the brass yeah. quite a lot. Okay, and the second movement is called Nocturne, a little calmer. 
than the trawler. Right. Um, the first movement. Very pretty um, harmonies in this one. Yeah, pretty harmonies. And the third movement is Dance of the Waves, which sounds kind of uh, happy, but it's supposed to depict a storm at sea. And I guess the uh, the swelling of the waves during that storm. What I liked about this is, so the, I've, mm. and this is just my interpretation, but the tumbling strings, there's sort of these descending string right. lines. Those represent, you know, sort of the, the, the waves. And then against that, there's sort of a march played in the wind instruments, both the brass and the woodwinds. And so you have these kind of two things um, going against each other. And then hmm. in the middle, it becomes slower and in a sort of broader theme. And then it returns to that, you know, dueling dynamic at the end. So I thought, you know, this one was, was a lot of fun in, in this movement to dance with the waves. Yeah, also highly listenable, very immediately appealing. Yes. It's, you yeah, know, very the, the melodies are kind of, yeah, the, the melodies are fairly like, pentatonic i guess like a like a folk, folk uh, song melodies, would be yeah, yeah folk like melody so uh, also very appealing and then uh we get the uh we get the broccoli after the uh yeah, yeah <laughs> the, the artichoke the the, the artichoke, and the artichoke. At the but end. if you're italian you love artichoke so there you go i like them too. all right th this next piece is sweet number one it's a pretty famous piece for large orchestra now he he recorded this um, after he, he finished studying with uh, Schoenberg in 1929. So he had learned yeah. the 12-tone technique of Schoenberg. Now, this isn't a serial piece. Serial no. means like you're, um, you've got the 12 tones and they all have to repeat in that order for the rest of the piece. Um, I always wonder how you're supposed to listen to those because I'm kind of... You know, are you supposed to remember how the how the pattern goes? Yeah. I, I could never really follow it. And uh, I so didn't this, study this in school, though, but, you know. This one is a lot, you know, it's obviously much more modern sounding, and there's a lot of different tonal. It's not 12-tone, as you say, but it, the tonalities change on a whim. And well, it's not serial, but it is 12-tone. 12-tone. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's a lot of dissonance. So it's not easy listening. However, it's a, is, It's not unappealing. No, there's a lot happening that's very interesting, and so it yeah. does uh, draw you in. Um, so if you're if you like, you know, 20th century pieces, modern kind of pieces, this I think this will be something worth checking out, and because there's a lot of interesting things going on, and what I feel, you know, even compared with you know the more accessible earlier pieces on this recording, the his use of all of the different instruments in the orchestra is quite appealing and so again here you get a lot of nice brass uh, interludes too and the, you know he's using you know, difficult harmonies but also mixed with lots of fun tonalities and rhythmic variations and so it, it sort of holds your attention and draws you in, even if it's not particularly melodic like the other pieces. Yeah, well, it's not melodic, and it's not like you're going to be following these hierarchies of keys. That was all gone, so you had to find yeah. something else to engage the listener's attention, which he does. Yes. Um, and he does it through like the, the various combinations of timbres, um, and also by making this a suite, which means it's going to have... Well, they're not dances. He's, he's going more for like rhythms or song types. Um, one of the things I love about modernist pieces of the, the, the 20th century is like, for example, um, if this is going to be a 12 tone piece, you, you can't start it quietly. It almost has to be this brash, harsh sounding chord, which is exactly yeah. what we get here yeah. right away. It's like, like, he has to signal to you, okay, fasten your seatbelts. This is what you're going to hear. So you hear that first. And I remember a friend of mine, um, who, who really loved, 
uh, this kind of music. And he was in like in the other room and I was listening to Mozart and put something like this on. And uh, <laughs> he heard this, this, this big kind of dissonant chord just came running into the room all excited it's like what was that that was amazing you know <laughs> you know so I, it kind of reminds me of people like that you know so i, yeah. I kind of got to like it because they were so enthusiastic about it that i sort of um you know got involved but this is really interesting um it's, a, it's uh, as a, about as appealing as possible for this yeah. type of uh you know structure and approach yeah uh, i i feel like he was able to you know adapt what he had done previously to this, you know, this sort of new idiom and bring in the appealing nature of things that he had, you know, worked on with instrumentation and structure from, you know, his previous experience. So I, you know, I was yeah. really impressed with that because there's, a, there's so many recordings of, or, you know, compositions of the same era that I find completely, completely unappealing in any way. And, and in, in well, this one, especially after the second world war. Yeah. You know. And this one, which I've never heard before. And even on first listening, I was like, yo, this is, you know, completely listenable and interesting to me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, considering what it is. So, yeah. So I just want to say, and I, I enjoyed this recording so much that I, um, whoops, I traded in the, uh, Knob Creek, uh, bourbon for some uh, metaxa tonight so oh, i got wow. the metaxa going All right you know. visions of greek god gods away yeah. your sleep ah uh, yes they do in my sleep okay if i like you i've had uh many experiences with metaxa both good and bad yes. <laughs> I had a horrible one with my brother-in-law uh, oh really which i think i still have some oh, ouch oh, no never mind yeah that, <laughs> that's still, long behind me now yeah. still have some uh yeah. Some some actually physical memories of that time, physical, huh? Yeah, dead okay. brain, dead physical reminders. Brain cells, okay. yes. Sorry to hear that. Anyway, I want to say uh, pick this one up, and I would also um, recommend the previous recording in the series, also by the Athens State Orchestra, which is called um, the Neoclassical Scalcatus, which is um, doesn't have any of his like uh, more twelve tone harsher works. It's all kind of highly listenable. That came out, I believe, in twenty twenty, but I'm not sure. Um, anyway, both both of these, the both of those um, would be highly recommended. Yeah, so. nice sound quality on here, Naxos. Good job. And, good job. Uh, good job. Fine playing State by the orchestra. orchestra and Stephanos yeah. Cialis too. Next time I'm right. in Greece, if I can catch a performance, I would be happy to do that. So, fine sounding orchestra. I'd be happy to do just about anything in Greece, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Our last um, classical um, selection for this week is by the guitarist Milos Karadaglic. All right, now Milos, um, he's, he's, he goes by the name of Milos, and if you look at the uh, album cover, we should have talked about the uh, Bach album cover too, which is this severe close-up of a like 17th century, it looks like a metal sculpture. I'm not really yeah, sure what it is. It's kind of a scary album cover, yeah. Yeah, it kind of. I thought it was a death mask, but it's not. It's actually some kind of work of art that's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in uh, New York. Go figure. Okay, but um, anyway, that's we're, that. That's that. that. That is a weird album cover, and uh, Esfahani yeah. seems to be uh, releasing all of his Bach recordings. His other albums covers are kind of strange too. Yeah, for Hyperion, yeah, he seems yeah. to have that this kind of theme going. Anyway, Milos, um, this album cover has him looking like an elf here, uh, sitting on a branch of a tree with his guitar, looking out to the uh, to our left as we look at him with his 
perfectly sculpted face and absolutely perfect hair. He can't possibly be this unblemished. This has to be an airbrushed uh, photo. He also, he also looks a little pale here. It looks like he's probably got a lot of uh, blue moonlight on him because the name of this album is The Moon and the Forest. All right, now, now Milos, wow. I'll refer to him as Milos because that's the way he's being uh, advertised. Milos Karadaglic is his name. Um, he's a virtuoso guitarist. He's um, he's a, he's kind of a big, he's really being um, in, in a really crowded field of guitarists. He's kind of like emerging as a star. And some of that is because of his, um, the way he's being kind of groomed by Decca Records, one of the big major um, classical music labels. Um, you know, they, they, this um, this very staged looking um, album cover. Okay, so it's meant to appeal to um, you know the non classical listener. I think um, you shouldn't let that put you off though, because he really is a top rate um, player. Okay, they're going for the widest audience possible here. Um, he's played the, the the famous Rodrigo Concerto de Aaron Juez and um, other other solo guitar albums. This one is um, two commissions. It's two concertos by contemporary composers: um, Joby Talbot, who is a British composer, and Howard Shore, Canadian composer, who you might know from his film scores. He writes a lot of film scores. He's a very busy man. Uh, I'm sure you've heard them. Um, but here he 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 also is a you know composer for like orchestra as well. All right, the um, so well, he's done uh, Lord of the Rings and the I Hobbit. Think, did he do Lord of the Rings? The Hobbit and uh, more recently uh, Pieces of a Woman. Yeah. So I I have a big issue with the Lord of the Rings. Uh, kind of you know the uh the music for that because um uh Aragorn's theme. Goes like you know, da 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 and it, I think he lifted that directly from Sibelius's Third Symphony. There's mm-hmm. one moment where the music stops and it gives you that heroic theme, and then you never hear it again. Mm-hmm. And as Aragorn's theme, he just keeps repeating that theme. At least that's what I think he did. But anyway, I was kind of happy to hear him here. I like him more as a his as his own composer. Um, now, all right, well, f- before we get to that, let's uh, just go through this program. Um, so Milos wants to um, introduce us to some new music. He wants to uh, create some new music for uh, guitarists to play uh, now and in the future because he feels like the um, the guitar repertoire isn't as large as and what is it? It's as large as say the violin or piano repertoire, and it really should be. Guitar is a funny instrument because when you think of classical music, who do you think about? Beethoven, Mozart, you know, Brahms, whatever. But if you know the uh, if you know classical guitar, like none of these people. <laughs> <laughs> wrote for the guitar. The the guitar repertoire, the greats in the guitar repertoire are completely different people who didn't write for any other yes. instrument. Um it's it's really interesting. It's almost like a separate field, you know? Mm. Um but which to me which drew me to it because it was like, oh new music. I get to hear something uh I wouldn't hear. Um anyway. Here we have um Joby Talbot's work Ink Dark Moon composed for Milos. Um Talbot was born in 1971, so he's kind of uh, around our age. He's old, he's younger Gen than me. Gen Xer. He's a Gen Xer. And uh this is a concerto for guitar and orchestra. The title Ink Dark Moon comes from a set of medieval Japanese poems. But there's it's I think it's just a title. It doesn't seem to be anything no Japanese, Japanese about this work at all. Yeah. It's no. like it's more Spanish-influenced in this one particularly. Yeah, so is the Howard Shore, and I want to kind of talk about that a little bit, yeah. But at least I think so. 
All right, so this piece is kind of, um, when you get to a new piece, you really never know what to expect. And what he's doing here sounds to be, it's fairly, okay, both of these work, well, there are, there are two other short works too. But the two concertos on this uh, recording are easy on the ear. There's nothing challenging. Yeah, these are it's, easy it's meant to be appealing. Yes, yeah. yeah, meant to be appealing. Now, please, he's, no, Russ just said easy listening. This doesn't mean relaxing. Although I guess it could no, be. Well, but what there, I mean there is, is a lot of activity. Yeah, okay? the, the, no, no, um, <clears throat> bad meaning yeah. in that. What I mean is like, I think yeah. anyone, even not usual classical music listeners, will be able to, you know, fully enjoy these works. They're both really excess i should say accessible rather than easy listening um, yeah they're accessible um they're not they're not really challenging for the mind either although there is stuff that you could latch on to to uh to really enjoy and one of the things is um the intricate uh orchestration in uh talbot's working dark moon um the yeah. guitarist is playing uh he's got a lot of fantastic virtuoso uh lines and melodies in this and he's playing over these sort of repeating rhythms that sort of don't Develop. They're almost like this little block. I, I kind of think of them as Lego blocks, and then like the next one comes, and then the next one comes, and they're all sort of different. Like one section doesn't necessarily. Well, maybe it does, but I, it didn't sound like it linked. They linked together to me, but that they went in any kind of logical fashion. But they just kind of yeah. linked together to make all this piece. I kind of thought of like the the kind of like uh, repeated sort of rhythms of, um, say, Philip Glass's early music, except that it's not like changing slowly over time here for maybe me john adams you know hmm? of the two the ink dark moon i i liked better yeah because of the integration of the orchestrations so guitar is a tricky kind of instrument to integrate yeah. with orchestra because it can right. be overwhelmed you know, right. by the orchestra exactly. but here i really felt that the orchestrations never overwhelm the guitar but they complement and accent what has been written for the guitar and don't get in the way of what's going on, which I think is probably a rather difficult task, you know, for the composer. Uh, the overall mood is you know, very dreamy with lots of contrasts, but it's accessible melodically and harmonically. But I, I felt that a lot of effort was put into the compositions uh, to highlight the guitar and have the orchestra, you know, bring out, the various uh, high points and uh, accenting right. what the guitar was doing and adding to that, you know, with what the various instruments could do without ever getting in the way of it. And uh, in the forest, <clears throat> I felt that sort of... Uh, this is the Howard sound, Shore work now. This is the yeah, second concerto the on second the disc. Concerto. It's very yeah. more, much more cinematic... Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it is behind mm. the guitar, and I really like the guitar parts in that one as well. But I felt sort of more the the orchestra was much more of a, a a backdrop to the guitar rather than in the Ink Dark Moon, where I felt the integration of the guitar and orchestra was at a much higher level. I think they're integrated rhythmically in that piece. Yeah, I thought it was kind yeah. of interesting. Also, what made the Talbot work so interesting was the orchestra is really big, which is a little unusual mm -hmm. for like a work with guitar. Yeah. And uh, one of the things they do they do for this particular work when they did it at the proms when it premiered is they they had um like 
really high level speakers for the guitar, like embedded in the orchestra so that you could hear the guitar at an even level with the orchestra. Um, what Talbot said about this piece is she wanted to, the orchestra to kind of act like the, uh, the sounding board for the uh, guitar. The guitar would play and the orchestra would be sort of like, I guess the inside of the guitar or something like that. I don't know, but it comes out, it's a pretty intriguing piece. It's yeah, got all these yeah. kind of these rhythms that, you know, are, you know, kind of repeat, 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 and then change. It's kind of cool. I liked it. Yeah, it's. I think you know. I I played this uh, for a couple of the people that were around during the week, and they, you know, everyone was sort of drawn into it without knowing. Yeah, I imagine what it was. they would be. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, immediately appealing, as is the Howard Shore. It's very sh- sure. I'm, my New York is coming out. Sure. <laughs> of course Howard it Shore. is. How could of course you go it wrong? is. Right. Okay. Howard You're Shore. You like it. All right. This is this piece is called the forest, and um, it's in three movements. Um, they're supposed to represent three seasons, and then he says something like the orchestra is the fourth season. Uh, he doesn't specify which seasons they are. He the three movements are called movement one, movement two, movement three. Um, this particular piece, what did I say about this? I, I actually had to write something. I'm really going by uh, what I remember this week, but this one I had to write something down for us. So I was afraid I wouldn't remember it, which might say something about it, about this uh, this work. It, it has this uh, you know quiet, mysterious opening and um, nice orchestration. Yet yeah, there is something cinematic about it. Sure does write for the cinema, and uh, right. this is sort of a tradition that uh, Eric Korngold started way back in the 1930s. And somehow, uh, composers for the cinema never cinema never lost that like big boned, sort of very American sounding, um, you know. Um, sweeping grandeur. Sweeping, yeah. you know, like you know, like like every scene you're looking at is the. Uh, Death Valley or something, yeah, you know, yeah. the Grand <laughs> Canyon, the Grand Canyon. Yeah. <laughs> you know? All right, but he's, you know, he's got some really beautiful, like little shimmering orchestrational. Um, the guitar parts are great in this too. part, I and mean, the guitar parts are really great yeah. in this. Yeah, yeah. I wrote Big Bone Movie Territory here. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of <laughs> exactly. there are a lot of Spanish sounding elements yes. in this piece, but apparently they're they're not Spanish. They're Montenegrin. Although I can't believe that because in the third movement we hear castanets too, and those are really, as far as I know, specifically Spanish. And okay. uh, I, I read his little note for the piece, and he doesn't mention Spanish influence anywhere. Um, and he, Milos in his note says something about uh, the Montenegrin, um, you know, kind of themes that he gave him, just so he would feel like it was his piece. Um, it, the, apparently the. Though speaking of Spanish music, the uh, the piece does quote Rodrigo's Concerto de Aranjuez at one point, which I couldn't work out. Was <laughs> I guess I got to yeah. listen to it a few more times, but uh, there is a very Spanish influence to this too, as there is with Ink Dark Moon as well. Oh yeah, right from the start, right from the very first, you know, yeah, guitar phrases. Yeah, I guess the guitar we think of it as a Spanish instrument is certainly well, it's uh, the biggest influence I think. You know, yeah. as you said, the composers for guitar are. Com- completely uh, different realm than other instruments. So right. that influence weighs heavy. Yeah, they almost have a completely different culture as well. It's really interesting. All right, now there are two other works on this recording, and uh, both of them are for solo guitar. Uh, there's the one movement, um, Full Moon, by Ludovico Einaudi, who is a um, an Italian composer who's very, very popular in Italy. Now, I'm going to recommend... Uh, I, I, I didn't... You know, it was this was nice and it's pretty, but 
the thing about Einaudi's music, I've heard quite a bit. This is a transcription of something that was on one of his albums, and he'll have usually this, some chamber group uh, playing these very short, three-minute, almost you know, pop-length kind of instrumental works. Um, and this was nice, but um, I don't know. I kind of feel like his um, he's writing for the people, I guess. He, his harmony isn't really challenging enough. It's very, like, kind of... I I thought these two were these two other pieces were mainly just fillers. One, you know, to be well, a transition between the the two. Yeah, um, but I want to say pieces. if you want to hear something by Einaudi that I really liked, uh, there's an album called Stanze, which means rooms, um, played by Cecilia Shai on the electric harp, and it's really really beautiful. Again, very simple harmonies. Um, you know, but, uh, this, this one came off really, really well. So this piece I thought was just, yeah, it was okay. It was, it was pretty in a kind of anodyne way. Now the, the other piece though, you know, this isn't really just a throwaway piece. This is Robert, Robert Schumann's, uh, yeah. Träumere from, uh, Kinderzinen, the scenes from childhood, which every, uh, piano student learns at one point. It's one of those pieces that you learn as a child that, uh, you never stop playing until the day you die and concert pianists play it too it's easy enough for a child to play but it's got enough kind of sort of um sort of feeling or um kind of meaning in it that an adult is always going to find new things so and he plays it on the in a guitar transcription here and it works exceptionally well i thought this was a really beautiful sensitive performance of this piece if you're curious of hearing what this sounds like in a guitar timbre definitely check it out i liked it it was a nice. It was a nice send off for the end. It's the last work on the album, and I thought it was a nice send off. And there you go. That's your classical music for this week. Yeah, I like, I like this one a lot, um, especially. Well, it's good to play for friends, as you said. Yeah, Milos's, you know, guitar. He always uh, his technique is great. I mean, mm-hmm. and it and sounds effortless, and but also. Um, you know, I'm sure it's a lot of the way he plays, but also the way that it's well captured here by Decca. It's a really a huge warm sound, which you know would be necessary in if you're going to do this with a, a big orchestra. And they capture that really well, and, and so that you never get a feeling that it's being overpowered by the orchestra. Uh, of course, the composers, you know, do well to consider you know, the volume of the guitar in their arrangements, but also mm-hmm. in the way that it's recorded and then in the production that that uh, guitar sound comes through. It's not only that it's volume matched to the orchestra, but the warmth and the fullness of the guitar and his particular, you know, unique tone comes through uh, very well. So that production value is really well done. And the overall balance is uh, excellent. And yeah, he has yeah. a beautiful tone. This guitar is very, you know, he's easy, easy, easy to listen to. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think you know, I think Deco's got a winner here. They've got mm. you know this you know sort of uh, a, appealing guitarist with a lot of a talent, and he's and he's also got you know the looks to match as an artist. And now they've got these composers who have composed for him with this very attractive music as well. And it's recorded just right, and the mix is uh, well done. And the overall effect is a winning package. And Yeah. You know. I was just uh, reading a piece, by the way, about um, how some some critic was saying that, uh, oh, this orchestra needs to program more new music. 
And the reason why you don't get like programs of all new music is because nobody comes to hear them. They yeah. <laughs> want to hear yeah. Beethoven, right? So the right. real trick is you got to pro- program Beethoven and then put the new piece. Yeah, you end with Beethoven because you don't yeah. want people people to hear the Beethoven and then yeah. leave before yeah. the new yeah. piece comes. So you got to put the new piece like third, and then like yeah. the, the the piece everybody wants to hear last. You know, so that they'll stay. And um, uh, but I just want to say like someone will people will come to hear a guitarist like Milos because he's a, he's yeah. rather famous and he's well you know, and uh, so him playing new music like this will draw a crowd. That's it's, it's really good when you get and- stars like this. And this is, yeah, this approach here, the program, the presentation, if you're going to draw people to classical music, I think this is like spot on, uh, really good program performance and packaging. Uh, you know, if, if any approach is going to do it, this is the one that's going to um, draw people in. Well, maybe. We'll see. So people yeah. like me kind of we see the like the album cover like this. I'm like, ah, you know, I just want to well, yeah. something more arty. But then again, I'm I'm a total snob, so well, <laughs> yeah. I think I think it's going to have broad appeal. Right. Okay. Well, I, I think it does have broad appeal. It's good. Yeah, anyway, good recording. There you Very go. Nice. Okay. Well, moving on to this week's jazz selections. Then we've got up first a Cuban-born pianist, Manuel Valera. Yeah, I liked this one a lot. Yeah, this is live at, let me see if I can say this correctly, live at Diez Ons, which is, uh, I I don't know what it means, I guess the 11 or something like that in French. It's the name of the, it's the name of the club. I'm trying to open my deezer to see the name of yeah, this it's, a, it's the name of it's, the, it's the, taking too long. The club that's in um, I, I Montreal. I guess Diez Ons, yeah. Diez Ons, yeah. Montreal, Canada. This was actually recorded um that's really not French. It's like Diza. I don't know what Diza is. It's yeah, like German to me. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it's the name of the club. Anyway. It's the name of the club in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Uh, this is pre-COVID recording in 2019, but it was just released this year. And uh, Valera, uh, as I said, was born in uh, Cuba uh, 1980, but he's been in uh, New York City for the last 20 years or so, where he attended the New School University, a famous um, jazz and modern music place. And um, <clears throat> he's influenced by uh, Bill Evans, Chick Corea, Keith Jarrett. And uh, he's worked with uh, a lot of famous musicians, including Latin musicians, uh, Arturo Sandoval, Paquito de Rivera, uh, also the trumpeter Brian Lynch, uh, drummer uh, Jeff Tain Watts, and others so he's got an impressive resume and he's here at this live date uh with a trio hans glowishing bass and clarence penn on drums and uh this album features a uh, mix of uh not standards well uh, there's a few standards there are a few yeah originals by other jazz uh, musicians and then uh, i think a couple of his original tunes i don't have the uh, documentation yeah. so much because it's a little bit uh, obscure in the notes that's available here. The standards he chose, I want to say, are just among some of my favorites yeah. to hear. So he I was kind of really happy way. about this album. So yeah. uh, it starts off with the uh, Thelonious Monk tune, Rhythm and Ing. Yeah. And uh, we get off to a start. After the opening riff, they keep it really uh, sparse with some really kind of monkish type lines but then uh Villa really bursts out in some fast lines uh you know showing a different kind of thing 
and uh, you get a couple of different shifts. Uh, it goes into a really heavy swing, and then there's a kind of tempo break, and then they go into a really blazing tempo uh, for the mm. piano solo. And uh, so he shows here a really kind of amazing uh, technique that he possesses, and also some really monk-like uh, chord ideas. Mm. So you get a sense of you know his uh, f- foundations, but also what I know his. Uh, current thing is and there's also a really rollicking drum solo in this first piece yeah Um, this this is a really excitable recording in general i just want to say uh yeah you said that uh, he had a bill evans influence i didn't really hear any of that i didn't notice it Uh, (laughs) he's um i could hear chicoria maybe and keith jarrett but the thing is i think the thing that really is um his main influence seems to be just the, I guess, the Cuban culture he grew up in. Not yeah. that this music sounds particularly no, it's like, not like Latin, Latin influence so much, but, but it has that kind of energy. This guy, yeah. th- this this yeah. group has like nonstop energy throughout this entire, uh, yeah. uh, per- this entire. Here's uh, the Latin energy, although this is not, you know, concept, particularly yeah. Latin. Although pieces, it's not like yeah. a Latin kind of recording, sort of, yeah, yeah. And the uh, two number two is "Whisper Not," beautiful uh, by, song by Benny Golson. Yeah. Uh, which has been recorded a lot. Uh, and the piano opening uh, comes in with a familiar minor melody at a nice medium swing. Uh, the The drummer on this whole recording does some kind of interesting things with coming in and going out. But uh, there's a drums, lot of solos as well. More yeah, than the drums usual. come in kind of later after dropping out for a bit once the tune gets kind of chugging along. Valera here mixes... Uh, you know, he, he can play these very clearly defined uh, single notes uh, with a nice touch. So he shows that he has a real commanding touch, but then he'll also throw in some really speedy runs. And uh, later, as the tune gets going along, you know, if you know this um, melody, he sort of changes the harmonies at whim uh, to where he's going to go with the melody. Uh, so he shows that sort of dexterity too. And some really... Uh, complicated two-hand figures and uh, chord things to keep mixing it up uh, before he brings it back down uh, to the melody again after his solo. So, you know, he shows a lot of what he's capable of on this tune. Uh, tune three is Tres uh, Palabras, which I believe is uh, an old tune from the 1940s uh, by Osvaldo Vares. Uh, it's been recorded by lots of uh, singers and uh, jazz musicians uh, and uh, Latin music players. Uh, over Did you the know years. this tune? Was it was it a popular tune first before? Uh... I don't know really the history of it. I just know that it's been recorded by a lot of people. Um, it's kind of but a ballad. You, were you familiar with ballad. it? No, I've I've seen a couple of versions of okay. singers doing it and things. So it's got a slow okay. piano start, and he reworks the harmony a bit before the uh, drums and bass come in, and it's got a nice kind of relaxed free tempo, and. Valera stays kind of melodic and pretty here. And uh, the drummer, interestingly, doesn't hardly use his cymbals at all. And so there's, you know, just sort of an added lower range percussion, but no sort of uh, tinkling in here. There's a nice deep woody bass solo. And then Valera brings back the melody more gently to the end. So we've got a at least one sort of uh, Spanish tune uh sort of leaning on this one. Uh, number four is uh, Evidence. I'm not sure about this tune. I'm assuming it's an original because uh, I don't think I've heard it before. It is a very busy rhythmic figure in the piano opening and then charges right away into a bass solo. 
And then uh, the piano comes back in over this really angular bass figure. Um, and he builds into a, a really uh, charging sol piano solo here, with lots of two-handed rhythmic figures, and really fueled by the drummer who seems to have found the cymbals again after the previous track. <laughs> so he really uh, comes in, feeds there. And then uh, the piano solo comes down at the end quietly into a drum solo and then uh, sort of back into the complex intro idea and then out. Uh, so I, there's no documentation that I could find on this one, but I think it's just one of his original ones, as is track five uh, called simply Ballad. Uh, and this, this is has, pretty. Yeah. I think it's, this is probably his original, I would think. I think it is original, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a mysterious theme. And just as it gets going, you get a nice clinking of glasses at the bar which is uh, a feature. oh right that happens in track eight, searching yeah. i think too there's like this you know you hear one yeah. of the uh the the, the wait staff kind of yeah, clinking the all these glasses on a tray together smashed together which, yeah there's a live recording needless yeah, to say it's a live recording yeah. so that yeah. stuff happens uh, um so it's there uh after this sort of mysterious beginning this track gets a more steady beat with a nice pulsating uh, kind of uh, or a pulsing bass line. And it changes a lot rhythmically in the piano solo phrasing. Then it opens up more and he brings in a sort of syncopated left hand that drives it and he gets, uh, you know, developed in a lot of ways. It's almost, uh, it's seven and a half minutes long, so he can really stretch out and develop the tune. Uh, so this is a very attractive uh, original number. Uh, six is uh, the old Gershwin tune, but not for me. Um, interesting reharmonization of the melody uh, in the piano intro. Uh, and then he gets into a swinging of the, you know, the standard tune, but he alternates it with reharmonized passages. Um, so it gets into the piano solo, which is bouncy and keeps building with a lot of runs. There's some choppy chords and bluesy figures. The end the solo with some nice syncopated chord punches before returning to the melody. Uh, so he takes some liberties with this uh, quite famous tune that I'm sure you thought most people will uh, recognize. Uh, track seven, Darn That Dream, uh, Jimmy Van Heusen with lyrics by Eddie Delange going back to 1939. And another interesting reharmonization of the melody in a brisk swing and some nicely placed breaks uh, in the melody. And the piano solo goes off on some more fast runs. And he likes to use these kind of chord blocks here. And the drums are in a quieter mode uh, on this track here. And then when he gets into his solo, you, you get the two sort of um, aspects of his personality. He can really swing like, you know, in a traditional swing mode, but then he can sort of switch to a real modern style of playing. And he does both in this track well. And there's some really blazing 16th note figures uh, here that show off his technique. And uh, when they come back to the melody, they trade off uh, with the drums a bit at the end uh, as they go out. Uh, so interesting treatment of this standard. Uh, number eight is uh, Searching. I believe this is a cover of a, a Roy Ayers, the uh, vibraphonist, uh, did some sort of uh, kind of funky jazz tunes. I, I think this is a cover of it, uh, but they have their own arrangement and it really starts out kind of like a spy theme. <laughs> it's like a, a spy theme bass with this low piano opening. 
kind of mysterious. And it develops over that bass figure a bit with some bluesy piano and quiets down at the end of that for a bass solo where the piano keeps the riff going in the left hand. And then comes back for a piano solo that builds over that kind of funky beat. And uh, Valera expands the harmonies uh, in that idea with some fast runs and rolling chords. And then we uh, close out the set with the Cole Porter tune, What Is This Thing Called Love?, which is done in a kind of unique arrangement. There's some descending dissonant piano figure um, with a kind of rhythmic left uh, hand that uh, gets picked up by the bass as the drums come in and it keeps repeating. And you put, you may not recognize this tune. I mean, it's a very famous jazz standard, but well into this intro, you, you may still not get it yet. And finally, <clears throat> Valer brings out the melody uh, for a bit, but improvises heavily on it right from the beginning. Um, then it gets really swinging and intense in his solo. And the drum solo comes in and they bring it over that rhythmic figure, which is doubled in the piano and the bass. And then uh, it's back to the melody with the kind of rhythmic piano excursion before the end. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's a fun recording. It's a pretty good sound for a live album, although uh, there is some crowd noise, which you know is generally recordable. There's the bottles and glasses here, kind of giving you the feeling that you're yeah. there. You know, um, the only thing uh, I thought the balance of the instruments is quite good for a live recording. The piano sounds a bit dull for my taste. Uh, it's lacking a bit of brightness, uh, which would help it cut through more. It could just be the room sound or the micro microphone positioning. It's not that the piano is not loud enough. It, I just would like some more of the harmonics in the higher end on it. But, you know, not bad. As far as the musicianship, I mean, you know, if you haven't heard Valera yet, you should check him out. He shows tons of technique, uh, very creative arrangements, and uh, that he can do a nice mix of, you know, you know, swinging piano style, but also really modern uh, kind of uh, improvisations and takes on tunes. Uh, with his own compositions here included. And, uh, you know, he has huge chops here. And uh, I think he can do, you know, a lot of things in the future we should be uh, waiting to listen to. Yeah, I personally thought that this this whole uh, concert, it just had this kind of electric kind of kind of energy to it. You know, it was really, it was really uh, compelling in that way. You know, it's, it's, it just sounded like kind of high energy and really positive. I liked that about it. Yeah. I, I think the ensemble playing was great. It, it, it was just, it wasn't really a mellow night out. Let's just say that. No, no, no. He has a good energy mm. here. And mm. what I, you know, I've seen his name and I'm, I think I've listened to a few recordings with him added, but, um, you know, since he is uh, Cuban and he's played with Paquito de Barrera and things, I, I want to go back and, or, and listen to and hope for in the future. I want to hear some more Latin type things. Uh, from him, I mean, that he would shows, be nice. Yeah, he'll probably he shows, do it. Yeah. He shows here that he has, you know, you know, complete jazz chops. But I want to hear his Latin sort of uh, excursions more too for myself, yeah. just to see what his Cuban influences are like. Because, yeah, just uh, Latin jazz is so yeah, you know, appealing like just in general. Yeah. Anyway, we like it a lot. Yeah, so it's kind of um, it's kind of like the uh, I guess the Baroque music of uh, jazz. Yeah, it's just so high energy and positive. Yeah, <laughs> Right. He shows a lot here. Um, you know, he can do a lot of things. Uh, 
good taste. It was a nice mix of ballads and also uh, high energy things. And uh, the um, interplay is good with the trio. Uh, I thought the, the drums are sometimes a little uh, unorthodox with me with what he's doing when he's not using the symbols or when he you know chooses to drop out. But you know, it's not to any negative effect. I thought it was good. It's live data. It must have been an awesome show to be at. So, hmm. um, yeah, definitely look out for this guy, um, Manuel Valera. And uh, I'm, I think, you know, he's going to have uh, more interesting things coming up. Right. My favorite album, that was my favorite album of the week, by the way, oh, for, yeah, as far as jazz this. goes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, of the three jazz albums, that was my favorite one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like I liked it a lot. Uh, the next one is probably the most... Um, promoted and uh, hyped album of the the three but i wanted to check it out and this is uh squint on blue note oh, by julian, uh, yeah, julian lage yeah. julian lage and um yeah so this has uh, gotten a lot of uh, attention and uh lage or lage i'm not sure i pronounce i think he calls him, i've heard him say his own name is lage uh, oh, maybe a, it is Lush. Okay, sorry. He's, uh, kinda, he's uh, I've fairly never heard young. His name. Well, compared to us, he's a youngster. He's uh, 33. He was pretty much a child prodigy and had a little uh, documentary film made about him uh, called Jewels at Eight. I mean, how many people get a movie <laughs> made about them in 1996? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to want to see that. No, I, mean, I don't want to see that. Precocious, yeah. amazingly yeah. talented children really yeah. and bugged me. At age 12, he performed <laughs> at, the, at the 2000 Grammy Awards. Uh, there. Yeah. By um, the way, he's a. I, I should mention he's a Grammy. He's one of those people who are like a Grammy. Uh, you know, sort of darling. Yeah. Sort of. He's like every album he puts out is nominated yeah, for a Grammy nominated. and then doesn't win. Yeah. It's always nominated. But so he's. You know, this he, one will be nominated. So we'll we'll be talking about this again in our Grammys nominated. episode in gets, December or January, whenever we do it. So he gets a lot of attention, which normally will make me dislike him uh, yeah. right from the start, but not not so in the case here. Um, yeah, he's he's a good guitarist. Is what yeah, it comes down he's, to. He's a very interesting, and uh, he uh, became a faculty member uh, at the Stanford Jazz Workshop in uh, 2003. So I guess that was when he was what 15, 16. <laughs> um, Boy, and then uh, eventually graduated from uh, Berkeley. Uh, College of Music in 2008. And, it's nice uh, when you know when you get, what you're going to do for the rest of your life yeah. at 15, isn't it? Yeah, and currently he's... Uh, I'm, I'm 55. I'm still trying to figure this out. Currently he's a, a faculty member at New England Conservatory of Music. And in addition to all these other achievements, uh, yeah, he's recorded with some greats, uh, Gary Burton, John Zorn, and uh, Charles Lloyd, uh, as uh, well as many others. One of my so, favorites, Charles Lloyd. Yeah, Charles Lloyd. So getting down to this uh, particular recording, um, I don't know. I To me, I find, uh, you know, this is on Blue Note uh, hmm. Records. And, um, you know, they they kind of hype it up as, you know, exploring the legacy of Blue Note. But I don't really... It's now run, now run really, by Don Was. It's a little different these days. Yeah, I, I don't really yeah. see it as, to, to me in the tradition of blue note although you know i mm. like this recording a lot um but uh so it's it's an interesting mix of things uh jazz and non-jazz and yeah. so there's a lot of bluesy uh, kind of things on yeah, it as well blues, but i say it's blues rock country which is interesting because mm. uh he actually uh was uh classically trained uh let's see where did he say so at the san, you can francisco, hear that. san yeah. francisco conservatory of music uh, he uh, got his classical training, although I don't 
think that shows up as far as stylistic influence, but I'm sure it influenced his, uh, you know, prodigious technique. Uh, mm. So on this recording, yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Um, we start out with, uh, this is a mix, mostly original tunes, but there's some uh, original, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, some interesting uh, other kind of cover things in here. It begins with uh, a tune titled Etude, uh, A Study. Mm-hmm. Um, this is his own composition. And, it's got uh, a lot of scales. Yes, it's yeah. it's a, a study that's very interesting to listen to. It begins with some soft tone lines that outline the melody. And uh, Lajan Bellis's, uh, he got a lot of chiming chords and a whole plethora of different techniques that he brings in here because he has all these techniques at his whim. And uh, he moves it around. And sometimes you've got the, you know, uh, top register moving. And then other times, uh, he's doing uh, sort of more melodic things uh, in the lower register. And uh, it's a nice, but overall it's a nice balance of technique and style uh, here packaged into uh, this uh, etude. And, it, you know, it shows what he can do with uh, technique and also a stylistic balance really well. Uh, it goes into uh, track two called Booze Blues. This is really a rocking blues uh, but it's an interesting structure. It's sort of a a sandwich. Uh, there's two blues, two 12-bar blues choruses, but it's sandwiched with an unusual six-bar bridge. So he's kind of a an unusual construction. Um, and then, you know, that's the repeating sort of uh, compositional figure. And he takes this through, you know, the the melody. And then when he gets to his solo... He really keeps it rocking, but then he goes outside the uh, chord for some kind of adventure and does some also uh, kind of modal lines uh, over this too. Uh, so it's kind of a uh, fun uh, original rocking blues with this one. Okay. Yeah, then uh, the third tune is the title track, Squint, which is uh, it's a really rambling intro. It's kind, kind of, of squinty, a, isn't it? This it's piece squinty. it's kind of yeah. It's rambling into a fast one note kind of picking. Then the uh, drums join in, and uh, Lange gets uh, quite jazzy for a bit. The bass kicks in, and they're really off swinging. Uh, sometimes it's kind of bluesy country swing, and uh, Lange is doing a lot of uh, different things in his improvisation. You, you really know never. You really you have no idea what he's going to do next. Uh, that's his kind of style. I figure you know he's. He's off to all sorts of directions. Um, and then uh, there's a kind of rhythmic bass solo here with lines and intervals. And it comes sort of back to that kind of staccato repeated note that Lange established in the beginning. And he comes back in with some really kind of lines on a guitar from outer space. Mm-hmm. And there's a little uh, uh, drum kind of uh, interlude and then it's over. Uh, track four is called uh, St. Rose, and this is a real rock tune. Uh, it's got an opening riff with a catchy melody. And it's got a tremolo effect on it, too. Yeah, he uses this cool. tremolo a lot, uh, which is really like cool. Tremolos. This thick yeah. kind of uh, you know, tune that you used to hear you know, in you know, 50s and early 60s more, but he, he grabs that nostalgia yeah. and he makes it part of his own sound. Uh, yeah. And then also on this tune, he adds some really kind of screaming lines uh with lead guitar and some really chunky chord figures. 
Um, and then if you get a chance to look at one of his videos of him playing and you'll see how he's, his technique is a large part of this sound. Uh, he picks, he uses a guitar pick, but he also uses his, his fingers, particularly his middle finger a lot uh, simultaneously. And in this way, he's able to play a lot of different kinds of things all at once, uh, which, you know, enables it's part of his technique but also his concept that he's able to do all these different kind of sounds at once and create this unique sound uh so after all of these uh original compositions then uh number five we uh, jump back in time to the tune uh emily uh johnny mandel and johnny mercer tune uh which has been recorded by so many people over time and uh he you know there's a nice jazzy ringing out of the familiar melody on the guitar uh, before the bass and drums join in. And you got a nice kind of slow uh, swinging jazz walsh. And, yeah, uh, gen- I got a gent. It's really a gentle kind of sounding. Yeah, uh, yeah, gentle piece. waltzy thing. And mm. I, he dances nicely in his solo. Uh, he's got some nice starting lines. There's some nice drum uh, brushwork here that just sort of, I call it uh, spackling. They kind of. <laughs> You know, it's uh, an interesting way to describe yeah, it, actually. Yeah, spackling the walls behind him. It's really nice touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great melodic uh, bass solo. I don't know if I um, mentioned the other players. So um, here is uh, bassist is uh, uh, Jorge Roder and uh, dr- on drums uh, Dave King. And uh, so yeah, this is really a nice uh, effect on this one. And at, at the end is a uh, kind of uh, pretty cadenza at the end of this tune uh, with a kind of nice final overtone note right at the end on the guitar. Yeah, so uh, nice uh, treatment of this standard. Uh, Track six is Familiar Flower, another original. Uh, This starts out with some kind of jungle drums and uh, deep (laughs) bass. Uh, and then Lange comes in with some real flourishes and chromatic lines. And his solo it's pretty is, wild. Yeah, yeah the solo is, is wild. This one yeah. is out there. His uh, solo is like free exploring different harmonies and mixing these speedy angular lines, also with some bruisey, bluesy riffs and uh, a variety of strums. Uh, so uh, it says familiar flower, but I'm not sure I know this flower. Yeah, I know. It's kind of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Familiar kind of misnomer who. title, but it's a lot of it's a fun piece uh, here. Uh, seven is called Day and Age, another original. This has got a, like a dreamy guitar riff opening, and uh, a slow even beat uh, starts out the tune. There's a nice melody and harmonies here, and then Lodge works some kind of hammering chords and bends uh, to a climax in his solo. Uh, really goes on a journey, and he brings it back down back to the uh, intro riff. It's got a real nostalgic uh, kind of feel uh, to this tune. I mean, this is original, but it's like one of those kind of tunes like, oh, this sounds so familiar to me, you know? Hmm. Uh, Next tune is called Quiet Like a Fuse. It's a very (laughs) interesting title. And uh, this uh, has a very uh, pretty guitar opening. And as it develops, this is one of the more interesting tunes on the uh, recording, I thought. There's, uh, in the accompaniment, the, the bass has this, it, this, this tune is in four beats, but the, the bass has a three-beat 
kind of uh, disappearing bass line. So it's in four beats, but it's like, dun, dun, dun. So the first three beats are the bass. And then the second measure, the bass lays out. So you get one, two, three, Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> so that sort of leaves this huge space for Lange's kind of uh, guitar weaving. And then his guitar sound here is really, the tone is superb. Um, and so it goes through this passage with this sort of, uh, you know, bass prodding of that. And then there's a kind of a contrasting, uplifting chorus. And then when later Lange comes in, he does some really bending, weeping like notes that he really lets hang. And then later that bass comes in and then it's sort of expanded instead of the three beats, it, it goes to four and extends to the next measure into the, into five beats. So hitting the downbeat on the next measure. And I don't know if this is, you know, planned or that they, they just felt this out, but I thought this piece is is really kind of intriguing in in the structure of it, and uh, gives him lots of space uh, to work before they come back to that uh, original kind of idea, and uh, interesting title, quiet like a fuse. Uh, track nine is called short form, although it's a really long form piece. I'm not I'm not quite sure about this one. It's got another uh, attractive guitar intro, and then the the tune mixes really. Uh, pretty melody and but it also has this sort of angst or uneasiness in it and it's it's built over this kind of like an implied eight beat structure if you if you listen to what happens in sort of the way the beats are divided seems to go through eight but not every single time and um this is long and well-developed uh, there's a lot of subtle playing here, and he also incorporates a lot of uh, nice muted strumming sections into here. So uh, this is a, a kind of subdued uh, piece amongst this program. He really holds back here, uh, but I found it kind of intriguing. And then uh, track 10 is called Twilight Surfer, kind of a strange uh, <laughs> title, when it starts out, I thought the intro riff is really sort of like a John Lee Hooker kind of uh, uh, thing. But then right after that, the tune goes into a bit kind of like a, a country-like feel. And then I felt like it's sort of like a Southern revival kind of feel with a bounce. And then the yeah, drums like a nice and bass. Groove to it. Yeah, yeah, the drums and bass eventually work up this real groove and Lange adds mm. like a lot of punchy lines uh, on this. So this is like a, a real kind of uh, journey with different influences uh, to it on this original tune. Yeah, uh, I found the title Twilight Surfer to be sort of um, evocative, like, you know, getting in the last waves before the sun sets. Yeah. You know, kind of like that sort of red sky and you're kind of getting yeah. those last waves. And that's kind of, it kind of put me in a good place. I, don't know, I like yeah. this whole track. Yeah, this is a good tune. And yeah. uh, closes out the album with uh, <laughs> something kind of interesting. Now, this is Call of the Canyon uh, by, uh, well, the tune was composed by, uh, composed by Billy Hill. But this is, uh, goes back to Gene Autry, uh, huh. 1940 uh, movie Melody Ranch. And hmm. so it's kind of a nostalgic out west lullaby to end things. And uh, yeah, Lange treats it pretty you know, gently, uh, he brings in a little bit of blues feeling in spots, uh, but then 
as he's, you know, sort of uh, saying goodbye, he throws in these sort of effortless, very quiet, fast runs that are sort of, you know, sprinkling technique over here. And then when he comes back to the melody at the end, he, he shows some nice muting uh, technique uh, on his playing in the strings. So it's sort of a, a nice sort of uh, good night kiss sort of to the album. <laughs> Uh, so, and yeah. to the listener, to the listener's ears. Yeah, overall, yeah. I thought you know this. I would. It's hard to say this is you know blue note jazz, uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting, it's, it's its own thing, really. Yeah, it's his own thing. It's I mean, it's his style. It's an interesting mix of influences. There's you know there's a rock influence, uh, also jazz, blues, country. Uh, it's an album of contrast. Really. Raj, you know, he has a really mm. amazing technique and creative spirit i i thought you know the tunes have structure but not too much because uh i think he likes this uh, freedom uh because he wants to and is able to do anything and go anywhere he feels you know sort of you know at the uh at any turn so you get it but you also get a sense that you know that's the structure that you know makes him uh show his strengths and like a cat, he always lands on his feet. I, hmm. you know, get the feeling uh, of it. So, uh, yeah, enjoyable recording. And, uh, you know, he's, his style is really, really unique. And his technique is also so, he yeah, is very fun to listen to. Yeah, the, um, yeah, it, it, you know, like falling on your feet in Italian, the term is uh, cadere in piedi. And one interesting thing about Italian culture is when we think of someone as falling on their feet, we think they were lucky. But the Italians consider falling on your feet to be a skill. Like some people can can have this like special skill of being able to do that. I guess like they're a cat. They think about it differently. And I kind of guess Julian Lage is kind of probably like that. He's got that falling on his feet skill. Yeah, I get the feeling, you know, he since he's... It was a prodigy and has played his whole life and that um whatever whatever he plays is he's going to be able to you know that's what you find with you know great jazz musicians like uh, there are not there are no mistakes there's just you know the ways to resolve whatever you play yeah, and um the thing is this guy was a prodigy but the thing is he seems to have um you know developed of a musical voice he he has something to say it's oh, not yeah. it's not like he's just like you know he's no, th no. this content to his playing as well so he's got like some kind of a sort of context that he's yeah, playing what i feel like, it is, like but he likes mm -hmm. to put himself in this sort of uh situation where uh he can go in any direction and then right. the the joy of it is just seeing what he's going to do and how he's going to land with it and uh the you know the arrangements of the tunes and also the style of you know his uh sort of compatriots in this thing are set up that way and, and that all works to his style very well um so you get that you know sort of you know it's not improvisation in just creating the line itself but as far as you know what's going to happen next in the overall structure uh, there's a bigger question here and he seems to be able to answer that all the time uh, in these sort of uh, structures that are left open to further possibilities. And yeah, it's quite attractive and, you know, he's up to the challenge all the time with that. So yeah, a lot of fun and uh, you know, 
this, what's this guy going to do next? How can he top this kind of stuff? I don't know. But well, uh, it'll be different. Whatever yeah, he does, it'll it's be always, it always does. Yeah, come up with but some new project. Really enjoyable. And I liked it mm. as much as I like this, and um, and I like the previous recording. The final recording and why I saved it for last is the one that I actually enjoyed the most of the three. And even more so because I had no idea what I was getting into when I picked this one. And I just picked it because I didn't uh, know anything about uh, this artist. Um, and this is uh, alto saxophonist uh, hailing from the UK. UK listeners, here's one for you. Uh, Ken Stubbs with hey. the album Three Shadows and Four Angels. A great title. Uh using numbers in the title. And this is on the Sherry K or Cherry K or I'm not sure how you pronounce it label. Uh, never, okay. <laughs> never heard of it before. Um, okay. There are a lot but, of those labels out these days yeah. uh, releasing jazz. Um, I've noticed. And I have a feeling this one is going to more go power to him. I say <laughs> completely under the radar. And uh, I just saw it on. Well, one at least in America, it's on the radar. I mean, it might be big in the UK. You yeah, know, it could maybe. be. I don't know. Uh, maybe yeah. not since he's a deserter. But uh, I, what, do you, thought, what do you mean by that? Well, he's, he's, <laughs> he's in the U.S. the U.K. Um, where, where is he now? He's down under, mate. He's in Australia. Oh, he's in Australia. Yeah, that's oh, right. Wow. Um, so uh, okay. uh, Stubbs, is, uh, his first jazz group was called uh, First House. Uh, okay. And um, do, do we have any listeners in Australia? Um, we have one or two. Okay. That's about it. All right. Okay. Come on, Australians. Chime in, yeah. <laughs> Get um, your friends on board. <laughs> so uh, he, he formed his first uh, group, uh, First House, and uh, they recorded uh, for ECM label a couple of times, I guess. And uh, But then he got a lot of attention, and then uh, he uh, went out to record with some other groups. Uh, I guess his biggest uh, group, in the UK jazz scene was called the Loose Tubes, which is kind of a nice title for a, a group. Um, but uh, among other people, he's recorded with uh, Mike Gibbs, Kenny Wheeler, uh, John Taylor, an artist I like uh, a lot, uh, Peter Erskine, Gary Husband, Phil Robson, some other uh, players. But um, then... Uh, keep uh, moving forward in his career because he was inspired a lot by uh, uh, Ornette Coleman, the great uh, free jazz uh, saxophone player. And then he, he moved off to uh, Australia. And uh, I guess he's now in uh, New South Wales with his family. And uh, so I I had never heard of Ken Stubbs before. I'm not too well uh, versed in uh, jazz in the UK other than... Uh, some of the major artists. And so I saw this. It's a really here. happening scene as far as I can tell. Yeah. You know, yeah looking at the like, magazines. Yeah. yeah in, in the UK. I don't know about Australia though. I, don't know I mean, what's going I, on I know there. some players that have become, uh, you know, at more active in the States, but as far as the independent scene in the UK, I don't know so well. Mm -hmm. So I thought, Oh, I'm going to check this out. And uh, I'm glad I did. Uh, so on this recording, we've got yeah. the stubs on alto saxophone, uh, piano, uh, I don't know if I can pronounce this. Ivo or Ivo Neame. Uh, guitar, James Muller. Yeah, it might just be Neem. Ivo Neem. N-E-A-M-E. -E. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, guitar, James Muller. Bass, Brett Hurst. And drums, Simon Barker. And uh, the, 
Well, this is a small release with not a lot of documentation. Uh, so I'm going to be guessing on a bit of this yeah. here, what's original and what I could confirm otherwise. Uh, but um, I'm going to assume the first one here is uh, original. It's called Two Ounces of Love. Uh, a very short piece, less than three minutes. Uh, but you're going to get a real sense of Stubbs's saxophone concept and sound. Uh, this begins with some really darting sax phrases. They outline the sparse melody uh, with the piano and some uh, piano improv here. When Stubb comes, Stubbs comes in, he's got some very fluid lines and a really unique tone uh, that can be sweet or a bit harsh. Um, but soon the melody returns and then the tune is over. <laughs> it's a really yeah. short intro. It's sort of an intro yeah. to the to the rest of the right. album. Yeah. And then what comes next? Next we've got uh, Melancholia. And this is a longer and term. This was really beautiful too. Yeah. I, I, I took to this right. This is one of the tracks that really kind of stood out for me. Yeah, this one really uh, brought me into this recording. Uh, it's a slow ballad with no drums. And that's kind of a feature of this recording. The instrumentation varies. And it's like they considered what they need and don't need on each track. And then they were very uh, economical <laughs> as to mm, excluding yeah. unneeded instruments. So no drums here. And Stubbs plays the melody really delicately over the piano and bass. And we get kind of a really lullaby of a bass solo over the sparse piano. When the sax returns, uh, his phrasing is very interesting. Lots of space, breathy, attacks on he's got a very legato style of playing it's very pretty uh and so uh this one's very attractive uh track um uh i don't know the origins of it if uh, it may be an original tune i'm not sure uh but track three uh we got a jazz standard here uh nobody else but me uh go back to 1946 jerome kern uh with lyrics by oscar hammerstein I think this comes from uh, the great Broadway tune uh, or musical showboat. Uh, yeah. This one, I come in uh, medium swing, uh, no piano on this one. So Stubbs plays the melody and uh, he goes down in the low register here a bit for some exploration. And um, he uh, connects some really interesting lines through this one. And he shows uh, a kind of maturity. He's never in too much of a hurry. And even without the piano, though, uh, and in his relaxed kind of solo, he connects the harmonies really well. He can follow the changes of the tune. And um, then I got a nice bouncy bass solo before uh, Stubbs comes back to the melody. And so he shows that without uh, harmonic support, uh, he can outline the tune and you don't feel you know, any incompleteness here. You get the full package uh, just with bass, drums, and sax. And then uh, the first kind of twist and in really interesting thing on uh, this recording, other than, you know, the general overall playing, uh, track four uh, is uh, Three Shadows. We found out that the shadows are for the man in black, Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, yeah. And uh, so... This is, I assume, you know, sort of original tribute. And then it, here, uh, the guitar is introduced for the first time. And it's a really thick, 
sounding, uh, you know, 50 mm -hmm. style guitar intro. And then the sax enters over this uh, guitar and sort of hints at some bluesy ideas. And then they, the sax and guitar, they both transition into the second half of the tune, which is the Johnny Cash tune, The Beast in Me. Yeah. And a uh, well known track. Yeah, well-known tune, and it's just guitar and sax. And I feel like it's out of reverence for Johnny Cash. They play this very straight. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of embellishment here. Uh, but the the mood that's evoked, you know, it's, uh, you know, very uh, much of a tribute, uh, which is an odd tribute, Johnny Cash tribute on a jazz sax album. Yeah. Uh, well, it, why not? Yeah, yeah well, why not? You but like the, it, you like him. Why not? <laughs> it's, it's done well, and uh, yeah, yeah uh, very nice. Um, and then uh, after that, we got uh, track five for angels. Uh, this is track is, six, right? This is track six. Uh, is it six? Because I think uh, they count three shadows well, they as, count those uh, as separate tracks. Some separate tracks. Yeah. Oh, okay, could be. Um, yeah. So this is uh, angels for angels. This is a very interesting one. Uh, the mysterious uh, piano intro. Then uh, Stubbs comes in with the slow melody. Uh, there's some really interesting chord changes in this tune. It sort of goes from dark to bright and back. And so the, the, you feel your mood being uh, pulled back and forth here. And then the tempo uh, picks up and the intensity in the drums and bass enter. Uh, and then the guitar comes in here too, and it doubles the sax melody. Uh, There's a really warm toned fluid guitar solo for a nice journey. And then the others kind of drop out and uh, the piano changes the mood for a while um, before they join back in. And then uh, the piano sort of uh, solos with some interesting rhythmic lines. And then Stubbs comes back in for his own sort of uh, pensive solo with a really great tone uh, with a fun exploration. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed this tune. Uh, I assume it's original by him, Four Angels. Uh, the next uh, track is called In the Oria del Mundo. Uh, this is a tune that I think was in the jazz world was uh, kind of made well-known by Charlie Hayden, the composer is Martin Rojas. It's a slow ballad. Uh, this one has piano, bass, and sax, but no drums. And Stubbs treats the melody very tenderly. There's a gentle piano solo with sort of interesting interval figures and runs. And then Stubbs comes back in for a solo that matches that mood until a really graceful end. Uh, so it's a nice treatment of this tune. Uh, then uh, the next track is an old standard from the 30s called Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams. And this is uh, sax, drums, and bass, no piano. Get a very slow opening that uh, kind of picks up into a loping swing. And Stubbs solo is relaxed and swinging with kind of occasional weaves outside of the chords. But it, the overall structure of his solo is really nicely composed. And then... Uh, there's a bass solo where Stubbs stays in because there's uh, no piano. He, he adds the backing uh, kind of phrases to the solo and then back to the melody and they trade off some fours with uh, the drums. Uh, then 
Uh, we've got a tune called Unity Village, which uh, I think is a Pat Metheny tune. And mm. uh, we've got a drums and bass intro here. The piano is back with some nice lines behind the sax melody. And this tune has got an uh, even beat. It's not a swing. And uh, Stubbs plays a solo that sort of... Uh, he mixes these descending lines with some exploration of lower register. And uh, then uh, the beat kind of stops and the piano has a solo with some repeated figures in the left hand and moves around a lot more freely. And we get a bass solo uh, and some soft drumming. And then finally they return to the melody. And then uh, to close out the album, we've got uh, a jazz standard. Uh, for Heaven's Sake, which uh, many people may know is recorded by Billie Holiday. Uh, the tune goes back to around 1948. Um, we've got a bass intro. Sax and drums kind of come in softly uh, with this slowed sax melody. There's no piano on this tune. And Stubbs uses uh, really long legato lines in his solo. But he keeps enough space uh, for the tune to really breathe and uh, is a really nice taste and uh, treatment of the tune right to the end. And uh, if you listen to this one, when you get to the end, right before the uh, kind of final resolving of the final chord, there's just like nice overtone attention that he gets, you know, occasionally here mm -hmm. on the sax, this sort of kind of overtone that comes out of the reed. And here it's right there going to the final chord. So I just thought it was you know, sort of nice uh, final cadenza to this recording. And so <clears throat> I really enjoyed this recording a lot. And it's my first time hearing uh, Stubbs, but I liked his playing a lot. Um, you know, last he's week. Got, he's got that kind of, even that breathy attack that, you know, that we yeah. all like from like Stan gets that kind of, you know, attack. then the sound, the sound appears after the, you hear the breath first. It's really nice. Yeah. He has a, obvious modern influence but it, it never detracts from his sort of melodic nature uh when he gets modern he uses a lot of sort of uh false fingerings so you know he gets you know this kind of double kind of uh tone with different fingerings mixed in with his things um, but he always seems really melodic and his his uh, solo structures are very logical and uh he keeps uh keeps them you know sort of with the composition so that even when the piano is not there he's, he's really easy to follow his uh you know harmonic uh sort of journeys uh this recording has an interesting mix of material i mean even johnny cash <laughs> with yeah. these standards and things and i thought the the arrangements are are nice but they're really also relaxed too these guys are really you know, they're familiar enough with each other. So they found sound really comfortable and a uh, good interplay between the musicians. And uh, so I, f I felt like, even though I've never heard of this guy, uh, Stubbs, uh, however, he's developed his jazz style in the UK and went down under. Uh, he's got a real mature style, a really unique tone and a, an approach to the sax. And uh, he's got some musicians that, understand what he's doing and they work really well together and i I've, i just keep listening to this one over and over this week uh so it was really a, a nice gem for me uh, to find in here 
Yeah, it was enjoyable for me too. I you had a I, this, these these three albums were pretty up. Actually, all of the record. This is a rare week where we liked everything we. Yeah. Well, it's not so rare, really, but we really liked everything we heard. It kind of, you know, yeah, put a little uh, I, I guess it was, step this week. It was a rare surprise because you know, like normally, new music gonna, was discovered and it was all good, and that's always yeah, a good feeling. I'm not I'm not going to pick something that I I can't say something good about, but uh, well, especially I'm always going to I will pick. Like you, I've already done this. I pick artists that I like, and sometimes I don't really like the uh, yeah. the outcome. But that's okay because I still like the artist. I'm okay. always looking for something good in it, you know. Yeah, or like if I'm forced to comment on like things that other people have swooned about, and I think you know, like, yeah. this is like you know, <laughs> come on, <laughs> the Emperor's New Clothes or something what, like what, that. What know? do you like about this? Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of Emperor's New Clothes stuff going on right about now. Of course, yeah. yeah. But this one, I mean, especially because I kind of went out on a limb on on this one. I I just saw it on this obscure page, and I was like, well, I have no idea. I mean, uh, the Lodge one, uh, Julian Lodge. I mean, I guess that was hyped, so I was hoping I would like it, so I wouldn't have to say anything uh, negative about it. But I really did like it, and the I Valera, liked it too. Yeah. The Valera, uh, I didn't know about. I had heard his name and seen. No, and I've heard him played as a sideman, but I was pleasantly surprised with, uh, you know, his individual recording, but the stubs was sort of out from left field. I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to think about this, but uh, let's uh, include this anyway. So I was really uh, happy and I'm, you know, Hey, if jazz is coming out of uh, Australia at this level too, then uh, I think, yeah, that's just fabulous. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's great. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, and there so we good. are. I think uh, this this uh, whole program is. Uh, I think you know the, one of the features of this week. Almost everything is really accessible. You know, even yeah. if you're not a classical fan or a jazz, or a jazz fan, fan. In, in a so sort of we're going to recommend you listen to everything on that yeah. uh, list. It puts put aside some time, and you you deserve it. It's good in stuff. A, in a diehard way, I think you know you could play this. You could call mom out of the kitchen, sit down on the sofa. You know. Uncle Eddie, you know, bring him in. Everyone's going to like this uh, mix that we've got this week. I think this Uncle is... Uncle uh, Eddie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are we related? Because I have an Uncle Eddie too. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I do. Really. I might not. Yeah. But I, I, think you could, I think you could play this uh, playlist uh, for almost everyone in the family and your friends at a party. Uh, you know, this week is... Uh, Even those sour pusses who don't like music, they'll start liking it yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is a really accessible week. I think all of, the, you know, the commonality of all this classical and jazz is that uh, they really hit a theme of resonance uh, that almost everyone's going to appreciate. And uh, that's what makes it a great playlist week. So check out that Deezer playlist. Yeah, do that. Yeah, so uh, as uh, mentioned in the beginning of the episode, uh, please do take a minute, comment, like, subscribe, uh, send us some feedback, adult music podcast, all one word. Five-star review, please. Five-star review on Apple Podcasts or yeah. any other ones uh, any other, you're yeah. listening to. Yeah, and uh, well, five star rating. You know, you don't you know review us if you like, but five star rating. Just click, click those five stars. So it really does help us too. I mean, uh, it takes a couple of minutes. We've only we've got. You some, see, I don't. Uh, but the thing is, I don't write reviews. I feel like I'm doing work. 
you know so i don't want people you know i don't want to feel them to feel like they have yeah, to do work for us like but yeah you can help if you want to help us that way we would appreciate it let's just say yeah. that just move that index yeah. finger stop picking your nose and press yeah. the when people when I, when I buy something <laughs> people say stars. rate your you know what was your you know please leave a review of how this uh went and i'm like no you're gonna pay me for that no i'm not gonna do that <laughs> yeah i guess so yeah, I but you know it's kind of like a so some people like doing that so Please write us a review if you can. A good one. Yeah, or write please. to us personally. We'll be sure to respond. Uh, yeah, write to us personally. We got a we got a we got a nice letter this week actually. Uh, so we did from, from a listener. one of our friends yeah. in Japan. Yeah. So that was nice. That it was, was nice, nice to hear from him. Anyone else? Please, yeah. Please feel free. That's right. So we're gonna have um, another regular episode. I guess it will be cause to celebrate for episode twenty. Oh boy! Coming up, you got to go to the liquor store. <laughs> yeah, I'm always going to the liquor store. I, I think episode I 25 is more worth celebrating. That's a kind 25. of a big one. 25 yeah. is like quarter of the way to 100. So I guess I wonder. Why 20 I is just any, another 10. You know, I don't have any money money in my wallet? It's always I'm going to the liquor store all the time. But yeah, there is that. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, 25. Yeah. So we're gonna have. Uh, well, anyway, 20 will be coming up, and uh, listen to 20 because. Um, there will also be a next interview coming up. Yeah, we have another interview coming, coming up. Uh, right. Not this Friday, the next Friday after next that. Friday. And this will be in the classical domain. Yeah. And you want to hear this if you want to be on the cutting edge of classical music. And in American, American classical in American music, especially. Classical music, that's right. And uh, you're going to hear it first on adult music. Nowhere else. You'll, you'll only hear it on adult you'll music. You'll only hear it on adult music. Yeah, first and yeah. only. So, uh, you know. We'll so tell you more check. about that next week. So, yeah. Be ready for that. Get up for that. And if you haven't heard the Mike Ladone interview, go back and check that out. You're going to want to hear that album because it's all your fault if you don't. Yeah. If you do, it's all your fault too. And if you do, it's all your fault anyway. That's right. <laughs> it's a really great album. All right. So, thanks for staying with us to the end. Of this episode 19. Well, you're welcome. I wasn't sure I was going to make it. You were going to make it. Yeah. I was going to make it because uh, I'm still here. I liked all these tracks. But yeah, to our too. listeners, uh, episode 19 of Adult Music, the podcast with the music for the mature mind. And we'll be with you again next week for episode 20 and hints of interview number two to be released the following Friday. And uh, more things to come. Interview three is already done. And that'll be coming out next month. Boy, so many things going on, Mike. It's hard to uh, hard to know uh, what's going to come next. Yeah, I personally can't wait, though. I'm ready, and I hope our listeners are too. So have a good week, and we'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.